Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast, where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also Not That Too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 23, The Tour, part 3. Recorded here on my youngest son's birthday weekend on July 24th, 2022. Thanks for joining me today. A continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail. You can check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro is from the song Sleepyhead, and our outro is Adam Age Vampire Cat in the Brain. Today we're continuing our three-part series on the tour. Welcome to part three, the third and final installment of this momentous chapter. We'll begin with some corrections. First, let's address a question broached by my terrific guest, Dr. Oenia Gold, who wondered, why did Wu use amphibian DNA? We're told mammalian DNA is harder to work with because it requires using the white cells, which are few and far between, apparently. Cloning reptiles apparently isn't, quote, impossible, according to Henry Wu, even as far back as in 1984, upon his recruitment by Hammond. And he says later that they, quote, sometimes include avian DNA from a variety of birds and sometimes reptilian DNA. And Wu discovers that all breeding dinosaurs incorporated rana, or frog DNA. So why did Wu use amphibian or frog DNA? It is admitted on page 209, quote, Wu himself didn't often distinguish one kind of DNA from another. After all, most DNA in living creatures was exactly the same. DNA was an incredibly ancient substance, Human beings walking around in the streets of the modern world bouncing their pink new babies hardly stopped to think that the substance at the center of it all, the substance that began the dance of life, was a chemical almost as old as the earth itself. The DNA molecule was so old that its evolution had essentially finished more than two billion years ago. There had been little news since that time, just a few recent combinations of the old genes, and not much of that. End quote. So primarily Wu believed that the overwhelming similarities between all kinds of DNA meant that he could incorporate any sort of DNA to fill in the missing pieces, believing, I suppose, that what was missing was going to be replaced by something that was almost certainly the same. Simply put, Wu says that because the difference between DNA strands was infinitesimally small, he played fast and loose with which DNA he used to patch the holes. Quote, when you compared the DNA of man and the DNA of a lowly bacterium, you found that only about 10% of the strands were different. This innate conservatism of DNA emboldened Wu to use whatever DNA he wished. In making his dinosaurs, Wu had manipulated the DNAs a sculptor might clay or marble. He had created freely, we're told on page 209. So why frog or amphibian DNA? Because Wu felt emboldened to do whatever he wished. So I hope that's a good enough answer. What other corrections do I have? Apparently, I thought the local baseball diamonds were being kept in good shape around here, but it turns out that they are not, and nobody likes them, and they're lousy. I still like them, though. These superstars around here apparently have played on good diamonds their whole lives, while I played in Windsor's inner-city diamonds that featured things like gravel infields and train tracks in the outfields. So, meh. (laughs) What we're playing on these days is all good by my measure. And finally, that wedding I thought that was last weekend is actually next weekend. So it's a good thing it's not my wedding, or that I'm invited to it, or that they're counting on me in any way, because they're not. In Dinosaur News, our first article comes from Royal Society Open Science, published on June 8th, 2022, called, quote, First Definitive Record of Abelosauridae in the Cretaceous-Baharia Formation, Baharia Oasis, Western Desert of Egypt. 
Abilosauridae are best known for having tiny vestigial forelimbs and shorter skulls that featured bony crests above their eyes. And they also have stocky hind limbs and range between 17 and 30 feet in length. They lived in the late Cretaceous in the southern hemisphere of Africa, South America, Madagascar, and India. This newly reported specimen is MUVP-477, housed at the Mansoura University Vertebrate Paleontology Center, and it's an isolated, well-preserved 10th cervical vertebra of a medium-sized abelosaurid from the Bahiria Formation. It shows affinities with those of other abelosaurids of Madagascar and South America, like Majungasaurus, Carnotaurus, and Viavenator and a generically indeterminate Patagonian specimen, too. Two phylogenetic analyses indicate it's either firmly within the Abelosauridae clade, or at least an early branching member of a South American clade called Brachyrostra. The Brachyrostra are, are Abelosaurs, more closely related to Carnotaurus than Abelosaurus, known from Argentina and India, and I guess also now from Egypt. This paper says... The new vertebra demonstrates how widely distributed Abelosauridae were spread geographically, spanning across North Africa during the Middle Cretaceous, and adds another large-bodied theropod to the Bahiria Formation, which also includes representatives of Spinosauridae, Carcharodontosauridae, and Bahariasauridae. So what a crazy place to live in the late Cretaceous. And remaining in the Cretaceous period on April 19th, 2022, Cretaceous Research published the dinosaur track site from the lower Boramian of Area Domastro Formation, Implications for Dinosaur Behavior, in its volume 137. The authors describe a track site found in Portugal, which was distributed in a, quote, heavily trampled limestone bed with which crops out alongside the rocky beach, says the abstract. This article gives me a brand new word that is glorious. See if you can catch it in this next sentence. Quote, the studied trampled surface is highly dinoturbated. 541 tracks assigned to sauropods, ornithopods, and theropods were identified, says the abstract. Did you catch the cool new word? Dinoturbated is the, quote, effect or process of trampling and major disturbance to sedimentary rock layers caused by movement of dinosaurs. Yep, getting stomped by a dinosaur is called being dinoturbated, provided that you are a sedimentary rock layer. Rock layer, not person who lay, lays rocks, not a rock layer. You have to be a sedimentary rock layer. They say 336 of the footprints were from herbivores. The footprints were deposited in a, quote, very shallow subtitle to intertidal lagoon environment. The tracks are challenging to clearly define, but they provide information about the procedures and behaviors of the dinosaurs who made them. Quote, it is inferred that dinosaurs crossed this area at different times. The herbivores may have possibly used the coastal area as passage between feeding spots, while carnivores frequented the area to hunt in groups or individually. You may think to yourself, self, that isn't especially surprising. That's entirely expected. But what's truly important is that this is evidence in the fossil record of anticipated behavior rather than just one using their imagination. So it supports the image of theropods hunting in groups or herbivores moving in groups in search of food, whereas without the tracks, that's just one's imaginative assumption. So that's good. With the corrections and dinosaur news out of the way, please let me reintroduce you to my special guest this episode. Okay, dear listeners of this podcast, you'll remember my guest today from episode two, The Bite of the Raptor. It's my good pal, Adam Leggett. <laughs> and we are set up in person. Uh, this is the only second time I've been in person for an interview for one of these things. Uh, the other was with my son in my bedroom. So that uh, hardly counts because he is in my bubble. This does make this a very special episode today. And as an early guest, he had the privilege to pick a topic of his choice. And so everyone, we're going to be tackling an exciting and an interesting character this episode. Ready for this? 
Well, his zippers bust, his buckles break. He's too much man <laughs> for you to take. The pavement cracks when he falls down. He's got more chins than Chinatown. Is that racist? Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he never uses a phone booth, and he's never seen his toes. And when he went to the, watch Jurassic World Dominion, he took up seven rows because he's Dennis Nedry. Dennis Nedry. <laughs> so credit to to uh, my intro that was written by. Alfred Matthew Yankovic mm. in 1998. Thank you, Al. Uh, <laughs> and I don't want to sound harsh when we're describing Dennis Nedry, so I'll let Michael Creighton do it for me. Here we go. He's a, quote, fat college kid on page 93, we're told. He's, quote, fat. He's messy fat man on page 100. He's, quote, a slob on page 173. That idiot on page 177. He's fat, a fat slob on page 201. And he's also a bit of a genius who built, quote, a hell of a system and a hell of a goddamn system on page 130, according to their engineer, John Arnold, who also says it again proudly, quote, it's a hell of a system on page 131. So, Adam, what made you want to tackle Dennis Nedry on your return to this podcast? Well, first thing, I, I thought Dennis Nedry was a really interesting character without realizing that Ryan had already done like a 70-page essay and took a deep dive on <laughs> Dennis Nedry. So I kind of just liked Dennis Nedry for uh, definitely the character. And, I, and what really intrigued me was the book and the death scene of Dennis Nedry. And that's really only what brought me to Dennis Nedry. But I, I know Ryan has a lot de- in-depth discussion with Dennis Nedry. Well, don't you worry about that. Maybe we won't even go in depth. Who knows? <laughs> yes, yeah. So, and, yeah. And it, yeah what, what stands out in particular with most people is that um, not so much that uh, he has a great death scene, but his death scene is so much greater in the book yes. than in the film. And I think that stands out significantly to, to most people who, who go in there and go, oh, well, that's a little bit different. <laughs> well, the death scene in, in the in the movie was was cool. It was really good, but it, it sort of wasn't, sort of was scaled way back mm-hmm. like i felt like like how did how did the dilophosaur get in the car was a big one for me um but in the in the movie it was very graphic and is uh, cutting his stomach open he's spilling out he's feeling the goo uh and it's just it's it's way more graphic that's right and they could not put that in Jurassic park <laughs> there's not, a, and there's a lot of disembowelments in the book that they couldn't put in and, Jurassic park and, movie. and even for a pg film of the 90s which is different than a pg film of well i don't know I've heard that the um, Multiverse of Madness was considered, the new Doctor Strange one was considered PG. Mm. And uh, from what I understand, it's basically the Evil Dead (laughs) rewritten uh, as a Marvel movie. So, yeah, there's like zombies and dead and everything. I don't know if you saw that yet. No, I haven't seen it yet. Good God. (laughs) So if that's PG, then Jurassic Park is equally PG. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, so I'll guide us through the ins and outs of the infamous Dennis Nedry today. Uh, the novel's first mention of Dennis Nedry is on page 53 during the chapter Plans, where That's Alan and Ellie receive an outline of Hammond's Isla Nublar Resort, and it said the Computer Command and Control is contracted to Integrated Computer Systems, Inc. And I wonder if that's kind of playing off the integrated electronics for Intel or not. I don't know. Who knows, eh? I don't know. Um... And that's a, obviously a business that uh, does the, the Pentium processing chips, or they used to. Did they do that anymore? Intel. They must do something. Yeah, they, they're still. I'm sure. They're still inside things. Uh, I imagine. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I'm not up on my my current computer things. I just buy them and they work. So. So here's an interesting trope that I, I looked into, and it seems to play out. Uh, Integrated Computer Systems is based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and the project supervisor is Dennis Nedry. We're told on page 53. Cambridge is a part of the Boston metropolitan area. Uh, and some quick facts about Cambridge. It's home to Harvard and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, which is famously referred to as MIT. And universities affiliated with Cambridge have played some role in the academic careers of 258 
of the past 962 Nobel Prize winners. All right. And that's more than a quarter of the past 1,000 Nobel Award winners. And half of those nerds won them for peace. So <laughs> not even, that's not even science. So that's an even more incredible feat for when you think about it. So the city of Cambridge is literally named after Cambridge University and uh, Canadian content here. Alexander Graham Bell is famously of the first patent uh, on the telephone, was a professor at the University of Boston. And apparently he invented his telephone in one of the university labs at Boston. So that's kind of neat. All right. So if you're a writer and you want to make a character sound smart, He's from Cambridge. He's from Cambridge. Yeah, right. And I just watched an episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. from, like, season one. Right. And they've got some brilliant guy. Guess where he went to... MIT. How's that, how's that bike going He's by? He's from Cambridge. Cambridge, okay. Yes, we're outside today, so it's good. Yes. We're going to hear the birds and the bees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the backfire. So this, uh, so, um, did you get the impression when you read this that Nedry was a genius? Um... He's, he's ahead of his time, I would say. Like back in the ninety, well, when the, when was it in the book that he was? T- is it, this is so it takes place in eighty nine. He would have been contracted for a couple years before so, that, so mid eighties. So the technology back then, and, and I remember during the movie, I don't know if it's in the book, but they mentioned the AI systems, and like AI is only coming to light really now. So like definitely going back thirty years ago or whatever it was is 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 I think definitely he's on top of his game. He's be, he's ahead of his time, um, and I know a lot of. A lot of Dennis Nedry's problems is is he's underpaid, mm-hmm. right? And that comes out quite a bit in the book and movie. Yeah, I don't know how he negotiated the con- no. the contract in the book. He says that he made a good, he made a low bid. Yes. in the film. He so, says, can you know any other contractors can do what I what I do? Would I bid for this right. job or something like that yeah, in the yeah. film? So, yes. I, so I'm not sure how it plays out in the book because that doesn't quite come up in terms of how he got the contract. But never, but, uh, never. What I like about the movie too is Dennis Nedry's in like the first. 10 minutes like he's like one of the first introductions in there and it's it's dogson coming in and and that's a great scene i have a few problems with that scene Mm -hmm. but that's a good scene and i don't know like page 53 in the book seems quite far in it's after all the the mystery with the 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 reptile that they find right biting and stuff like that so it's after all of that the book has a lot of technology and development talk before Mm -hmm. it really gets into the park the bite of the raptor, Nedry comes up at airport, and that's like the 15th chapter, I think. And so what that means is that we've gone, we've met Grant and Ellie. The first, yeah. so page 53, we're just looking at the the the, uh, the cover sheet that they receive in the trailer that uh, Hammett has sent them. So he's like, hey, check out my package. Uh, this is to give you some information about the park. Can't yeah. wait for you guys to come and be consultants. So we haven't even met Nedry at the airport, of course. No. And uh, we know nothing else about it, but here it shows in this world building that um, uh, we got these little details. We got a genius from Cambridge that is part of uh, mm-hmm. the computer command and control. So that's interesting. And as I detailed in episode seven, the shape of the data with my buddy of Scottish ancestry, Robert Brown. Crichton is a Scottish mm-hmm. name, which right. derives from a rich cultural Scottish ancestry, though I have no direct knowledge that Michael Crichton himself was directly descended of a Scottish clan or not, but I believe he was. And I believe, perhaps as a latent result, many of his characters also have Scottish origins, or, or their names do anyhow, uh, as like Hammond, Grant, Malcolm, to name a few, and perhaps coincidentally, just like Alexander Graham Bell, all Scottish names. And Alexander Graham Bell was, I can confirm that he was Scottish, but Nedry does not have a Scottish name. What does the name Nedry mean to you? How does it sound? Nerdy. Yeah, that's right. Anagram. <laughs> <laughs> that's on my notes, right? <laughs> 
it's, it's about as yeah. transparent an anagram yes. as could be. It doesn't sound like nerdy. No, it does not at all sound like nerdy. But as we yeah. uh, always make the argument that with spell, uh, the autocorrect on your texts, that I, they can change the words to mean like actual words, like get the spelling right, and it doesn't make sense if it's the wrong word. But if it's spelled incorrectly, you can see the right word without any trouble. Here, let me just check this off. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nerdy for sure. <laughs> but like, yeah, yeah, no, that's a good one. I, I was really hoping that would be your skill testing question at the end of this. No, interview. that's right. So I teased you that I've got two, <laughs> two trivia questions uh, that I you have no prayer of answering. No, I, I see. I, so if that was one I thought you were going to ask, then I'm I'm toast. But there'll be interesting factoids you could tell people, right. your friends, your wife, your kids mm-hmm. uh, later. <laughs> I'm sure that they'll be incredibly engaged. So did you did you did you see him as a nerdy character? Like, I'm trying to remember if I saw anything about him having acne or anything like that. Nope. And I feel like he might have been, but I couldn't find it. So well, he's got he's didn't. got like the typical like I don't want to go down this road, but like overweight slob, you know, uh, high of himself, almost narcissistic. Like he's like I'm the best, I can mm-hmm. do all this stuff, um, and like that's what I think that's what drives him to nerdy. He's like that computer guy, mm-hmm. and I, I remember when I watched the movie when I was younger. I didn't even really. In, figure out that he was he was a villain no at all like i thought i thought i thought dennis nedry was like just a great character and i didn't realize he was a villain until later on and it, like his his he's the movie <laughs> essentially yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We, we, it's uh, like the, every you, you talked about chaos theory in your other episodes and like he's the absolute essence of it like he's going and he's driving mm-hmm. he's 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 it's raining he's gonna he's gonna run off the road it's like, who knows what's going to happen? He has a plan. It's not happening. He's the kind of the catalyst that yeah. makes the, the Malcolm effect happen yes. this weekend. Right. And even though, in theory, it was going to happen at some point. I mean, the park was already failing. The whole movie was... Animals necessary. were already off the island. Yeah. We know this for sure. Yeah, yeah. They were already off the island. The, the containment systems, the, the breakdowns in, in, in the uh, sensitive areas that Malcolm outlined in his report were already failing. Just things came, came to a head cur- yeah. at this time which made a good novel uh, courtesy of Nedry expediting the process by turning off the systems and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit too was I, I don't think the word nerd was actually written anywhere nowhere I don't in, remember in the book. I, I, I did a pretty good look at it yeah, yeah. but another neat connection to Alexander Graham Bell what, you know, also being Scottish also being from Boston is, and also being a telephone guy Nedry made his name setting up worldwide telephone communications hmm. for multinational corporations we're told on page 103 He's a phone guy, too, so that's kind of neat. Plus, he messes with their phones throughout the rest of the books. So that's kind of cool. And speaking of messing with the phones, we're told in the film that he's communicating with his team back in Cambridge, and he needs some phone lines for, like, data transfer or something like that. That's where they're doing the updates. or Other people are working on the updates, right. and he's facilitating that uh, coming on. And I wonder, do you think this is his first time on the island? I imagine it would be. Yes, I think I so, too. I think so. Um, well, he, he might have been there for... A duration, but I think it's his first time on the island. It makes me wonder, eh? Or maybe he must have done some physical, physical running of wires or something, right? Uh, I don't think so. That's all the techs. Maybe I don't know. Uh, I think he he, I think part of the reason he complains about not making enough money or being lowball because he really didn't know what he was getting into. So yeah, when, right. when he's when he's into the the movie, he's he's saying, well, who else is going to do this for you? Because he's is a much bigger project than he actually bid for. So that's why I think he's actually fairly fresh on the island during the beginning of that movie. Mm. What's important about Nedry is what he does uh, to make the story more interesting. Uh, We learned that he's been jamming the phone lines for, we don't know exactly what purpose, but he wasn't actually transferring data. Turns out he just had them jammed. 
uh, and I, I'm not entirely sure not why. Not sure why either. But uh, he ruins the phone com- uh, connections, and in catastrophe films, the big plot point uh, that must be made is that you need to disable communications to render cell phones useless. And you can think of all kinds of examples where um, they, they take down the grid. Do they have or, cell phones in Or that movie? the villain takes the cell phone and smashes it. Well, I'm just saying it's a oh, common trope. You it. need to make it so you cannot call right. for help. You yes. need to isolate your yes. hero or your victims, and so that becomes a race. So Crichton is right on top of that very early. He's like, we need to get telephones out of here so people cannot call for help, and we can have confusions with where are the Jeeps and where right. are people and things like that. And you'll find, if you look closely, like people should be showing up on the video monitors, and they'll show, like, John Arlo will be like, oh, he's got the monitors off so he can study the code really closely. Or right. else they would have seen everybody on the monitors out in the park. Or other times, like, hey, can you come over here for a second? That's how it ends. And then people go and check the monitors the next scenes. Like, okay. So he's conscientiously keeping people away from routinely finding what they should find if they were just doing their jobs properly. Basically but, disruption. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this is part of it, that Nedry jams the phone lines. He just has, like, static going over it. It sounds like a modem. But mm. at one point, Arnold's like, I turned off all the modems. It's not a modem. Right. We don't know what right, it is. Right, right. Yeah, so this novel's no different from, like, that common idea and this was before cell phones of course and, and <laughs> so the walkies go down because there's quote interference from the storm right. or something so they can't chat with each other uh, and then the lines have to remain down because of something Nedry has done or else they couldn't call for a helicopter to evac at any time which they mm. needed to do because right. that, that's one of the the timelines is like boy we got to get Malcolm out of here right away because this guy is doing bad yeah he's he's been he's been crushed well He's, his he leg had, was he, crashed. It's yeah, 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 yeah. He's not he, he'd, he'd put a tourniquet on, and he if he didn't, he's dead. But, yeah. Uh, but, but it's not just a trope that keeps them from speaking to each other, but it's, it causes them to reset the system, to delete the commands that Nedry used, which causes the park to, uh, to restart on backup power, and that causes the Raptors getting out. So the cause mm. and effect storyline is, is really important here with with that. So his, his messing around is what leads to the all these collapses which is pretty interesting mm-hmm. yeah like he did not have intentions to have the raptor pen go out no it just was like you said that's that chaos theory again the cause and effect that happening of the systems coming back up line just screwed everything up mm-hmm. and there's something about expectations as well where there's a motif about or at least ellie sattler brings up this thing about a hoax is designed to show you what you expect to see and then when they start going through the tour you're getting um data count like population right. counts and stuff like that and they're showing you what you expect to see yeah. and then when the power restores they somehow forget that oh the computers were supposed to restart on backup power because if they hadn't um it, 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 if they were failing because there was like a, a catch in the system then it would fail again it would just be stuck in this co- continuous loop so it starts up on backup power and then you transfer it over but they forget this and so it was working as expected but they discontinued expecting it and I just there's part of this it's interesting in there. yeah yeah yep. so in, in the chapter airport we meet Dodson's inside man and his identity is kept a secret why do you think Crichton chose to keep Nedry's identity a secret early in the novel well like I said in the in the movie he was there in the first 10 minutes mm-hmm. so I'm not quite sure in the, in the book how he was keeping him a secret well, we don't get a name. We he's so only how were they how are they referring to him in the book in the book? His man and only that he'd been he'd become obnoxious and he had become arrogant. And they don't talk about computers at all. They don't talk about what he looks like in any way. He just talks about and so he's just, just just building up the mystery, I guess. Yeah, I was wondering about it. 
so I think it was a matter of pacing. Like the yeah, um, yeah. they they almost get to the, the, like dinosaurs at the park almost at like almost exactly, and by almost exactly yeah. I mean not it's like, exactly. Well, but it's like everything's being released. It's like at the one hundred page yeah. mark, and then. I think it was intentional that they skipped that part because they're just going to make it too long. Like the beginning of the novel, the gearing up, the building the mystery, the getting through the technology and getting through all of that before they get into the park yeah. takes a long time. So I, I find gotta... I find the beginning of the book take it's, it's a little slow. <laughs> it's like is this a book about dinosaurs or what's going on? Right. It, it takes a while to get started. And so I think extending the beginning with any further setup would have been tough. And and we arrive at the island. There's like. That takes about 100 pages of chatting about the science and everything. And so that takes about page 200. And then the park falls into chaos. And so there's about 100 pages of mystery, 100 pages right. of setting up the events on the island. And then there's 150 pages of chaos. And then about 50 <laughs> pages of tying up loose ends. Getting you get it wrapped pages. up. Yeah. So the mystery man doesn't act like the Nedry we get in the rest of the novel. He's when called... Do, when does the... This is off topic. When does the wrap-up start happening? Like, I know when I know when Malcolm's laying there and the raptors are mm-hmm. starting to f- push through the skylights. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. that's still the, just crap hitting the fan. At 11 a.m. Does that make help? <laughs> no, it does not. So they had they radio... <laughs> so they get the power back on, they get the comms back on. It right. It fries the raptors going through the fence... Uh, through the bars. Yes. And... It's close to those scenes. Then. And they were able to radio yeah. the boat as it's pulling into the harbor. Right, and it turns it around. Which is due at 11 a.m. And thank God it wasn't going fast or slow. It wasn't making good head time. Yeah. And they got it just... So well, 11 a.m. And then after that, they say, all right, what are we going to do now? And uh, they said, we're going to go look for nests. <laughs> yes, and then they... That's right. Yeah, yeah. And so the, the, the last 50 pages or something like that... They're, they're finally on the counteroffensive. Yeah. Yep. Well, they're trying to, I guess, calculate... Like, well, uh, they, they felt like they needed to just take care of those raptors and those nests. I, I don't really get that. They look at one nest. Well, they're in that, like, they're going down that, that hole. Yeah. And then under this underground space. And why not just get the hell out of there? Because there was this idea that they needed to see how many offspring might have been born to then th- calculate how many may have gotten off the island, I think. But they only check okay. one nest. Yeah, I right. think they believe that there was more than one raptor nest. And they obviously, I think I think they said there was eight breeding sites around the island. It's almost like that part of the movie was to really link it back to Grant and the birds. Because like, they were following migration patterns or something out of there, weren't they? Mm-hmm. They, were, they were facing a direction or they were, were, were working in a direction. That was the big like theory that. at the yeah, end yeah. before they nuked everything. <laughs> yeah. Right. This is really fascinating. Bang. <laughs> Um, so the mystery man doesn't act like Nedry when we get to the rest of the novel. He's obnoxious and arrogant with Dodson which I yeah, covered yeah. in episode 15 at Airport. And then, I, I think we're supposed to think, like, the next chapter is we meet Malcolm. And Malcolm's, like, arrogant and obnoxious. Oh, yeah. And I think we're supposed to maybe be feeling like Malcolm is... And he, we're introduced. Ah, your nemesis is here, he tells Hammond. I think he's meant to be set up as... We think that Malcolm is the guy that's going to steal the embryos. I wonder. I never got that feeling. Me neither. Not no, reading it, that's no. for sure. Yeah, yeah. But looking at it I, was like, I, I, don't, I don't know what else Crichton might have been trying to do because <laughs> otherwise I don't know why Malcolm is called an arrogant little just, snot by Hammond on page 91 yeah he's definitely p- putting Malcolm and Hammond against each other yeah and so that's uh, he, he's labeled by Crichton with one of these adjectives a- attributed to the inside man but that's about as misleading as inside the author man. gets yeah, yeah. the only other character to be described as obnoxious is can you guess Nedry Lex. Lex? Lex is Lex? The little girl? Obnoxious? She's obnoxious. <laughs> she right. whines and complains yeah. and doesn't listen. Hang on, we got motorcycles and dogs. We'll take a time out. We can do cheers again. <laughs> the um the beauty of outdoors. 
That motorcycle might have been louder than we are. I think that's like one of those done up Civics or something. That's a car. <laughs> Dude, bud. Uh huh. Not to get off track, right? Mm. So here's a literal literal introduction to Nedry, the character from episode 17, Isla Nubar, and see if this compares to arrogant and obnoxious. That works to expect. They had picked up another passenger in San Jose, a man named Dennis Nedry, who had flown in to meet them. He was fat and sloppy, eating a candy bar, and there was a sticky chocolate on his fingers and flecks of (laughs) aluminum foil on his shirt. Nedry had mumbled something about doing computers on the island and hadn't offered to shake hands on page 76. Crichton doesn't mention that Nedry is carrying a briefcase filled with seven hundred and fifty thousand right. dollars. <laughs> Did he have it at that point? Did he bring it to the island with him? He must have. He was supposed. He met Dodson with ten minutes before his flight. Right. So, so what are you gonna do with it? Yeah, he's got to have it. So he either he either got because um, a locker at the airport and trusted that his suitcase would be okay in that for I don't know how long, or he kept that with him. I think I would have no, kept it. There's nothing in the book or movie I recall, even like again, it's that scene that. That the briefcase is there. There are a couple times where, where characters are equipped with things, and then it is rarely brought up. Right. And there are three things that bother me. One is this suitcase. Two, when they're just about to enter into the park, there's somebody who is handing out pith helmets as they're hopping into the cars. Right. And a pith helmet. They're gone. Yeah. yeah. I don't. I don't picture anybody wearing helmets. No. Never. <laughs> never. Why would you wear a helmet? I don't know. Right. But somebody was handing out pith helmets whatever that means I, I can just think of like the red baron with a, a cross and a spike point at the top it's riding like sidecar it's like a health and safety concern like I have the, no the idea. health and safety reps like you, you gotta wear uh, and the other <laughs> is uh tim is carrying the the inf- the infrared goggles yes almost like past the kitchen so they turn out the lights in the kitchen scene yes he has and he's them. got the goggles he still has then. them yeah i know so you're right it's like he goes from jeep to, to that scene and there's nothing in between so like they pop them on once in a while but he right. scarcely is mentioned toting along mm-hmm. this helmet but we need to recall he he is you would have thought you would have thought in the movie there'd be like those scenes where he's like running off to go get the embryos or wherever they say I could, I'm gonna grab my bag or like, like in the stampede like hey just leave that behind buddy. right <laughs> or when he's climbing a tree like hey just leave that yeah, 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 <laughs> you don't need that yeah in the jeep when it crashed and got demolished and it was falling on top of them yeah he did not have his night vision goggles with them he didn't need those eh, maybe they're sitting on the counter in the kitchen and he used them then I don't know <laughs> so for all the suspense and the thrills that Crichton demonstrates mastery of in this novel, his ability to create a misdirect is subpar. He's no M. Night Shyamalan. Do you even recall, we were just talking about this, wondering about this mystery throughout the reading, like who is Mal- uh, Dodgson's inside man? Crichton does lay the groundwork of uh, suspense in terms of like um, the, one, the, the ones I have here. The stegosaur infection. Why is the stegosaur oh. sick? That was a mystery that you remember being something that was important. But it was like a side sidebar. Why the northern digs is one that sticks out in my memory when I was reading it. I don't remember the northern digs. No, it was part of like, why is why is he hoarding amber? Why is he only funding northern digs? These seems like mysteries. That oh, right. Yeah. And then, of course, the one on amphibian DNA. Why well, was Grant curious about amphibian DNA? And that is teased multiple times throughout the story. Mm. Those were mysteries that, that stuck in my mind. But this one about who is his inside man, just... Dodson, Dodson's yeah. inside man. That just seems like... Oh, I see. Like, who's 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 behind the scenes of the whole we need the embryos? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was never answered. It just seems like an odd no. thing to yeah. set up. Like, why yeah. was this mysterious? And then, and well, then not make much of it. I feel like he wanted to build a twist into it. And he just didn't have the space to do it or something I, like I read that. briefly in some of my prep that there there was another company who was also doing, like, rival work. Mm-hmm. And that was Dodson's 
company. Or Biosyn, is that, yeah. Is it Biosyn? And does that come out in another movie or book? The, the, the pitch he so, makes at the boardroom... So is, isn't that the inside man, though, for Dogson? Like, so, yeah. He's like, I've got a guy. We could we can seize this opportunity right now, but we've got to act yeah. right away. Yeah. And the board, silently, off the record, agrees, go ahead and do it. Yeah, a, co- a competitor. Yeah, Biosyn. So that was the catch. Huh. The, the What he says in that scene in particular is like, well, this will, will get us five years ahead of where we would be if we started right now from scratch. Right. So we believe this is possible. InGen's proven that it can be done. We could copy it, or we could just steal it. And so they choose to steal it. So the idea is, literally, they could have done no stealing and theoretically begun in investing in it themselves and just be five years behind. And as the island nukes itself... <laughs> right. They and they, they would have ran into the same trouble because that was one of Malcolm's thing when they're sitting at the table having, like, the, the first dinner of the night. Mm-hmm. Malcolm was saying, well, you guys, you didn't, you know, evolve with this. You did, it didn't come naturally. You just you were given the technology and you ran with it. And that would have probably ran with Biosyn, too. They were just... They just... Here oh, it yeah. is. They would and be even more reckless, of course. Be, yeah, yeah. 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 Even less disciplined to get it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that would be That's an interesting like, perspective. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, they would have been wild with it. Oh, and, would, and well, and, oh, you haven't seen the new film. I haven't seen the new one. <laughs> That's okay. That's yeah. all right. Don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> you told me it was an excellent movie. Yeah. Boy, I should tell you about the excellent parts of that movie someday. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so we did that. So on the film, um, tell me, what do you think about Wayne Knight, the actor? Right. The uh, the prestigious actor who portrays. First of all, do you like Wayne Knight? Yeah. Um, name on Seinfeld is. Newman. Newman. He's like exactly the same actor <laughs> as, as Seinfeld as he is in the movie. But I definitely think it's a great. It's a great fit in that movie. I loved it. The things I didn't like um, are the squeal. Again, that first scene. There's a few things that irks me. One of those that little like happy, happy squeal he makes when he when they open the can of Barbasol and he's like, ah! but uh, that kind of always irked me. Even when I watched the movie, I'm like, well, that's kind of silly, isn't it? And then. He's so delighted. <laughs> he was so delighted. Like, that that really got him, that Barbasol can. I don't really understand why he was so pumped up about that. But that squeal got me. And um, one, of, one of the things that really weird, weirded me out when I was a kid, and even still, is how he puts the shaving cream on the pie. <laughs> I think in the book he just rubs it on the table. He had a so lot of food on the table. Like He was obviously, <laughs> I'm not going to eat this pie. I ordered well, the pie. But... I, so when I was a kid... I didn't know what Barbasol was, mm-hmm. so I thought it was always whipped cream because he put it on the pie. Yeah. And then when I watched it more later, he's like, "Oh, that's shaving cream." And why the hell did he put it on the pie? Yeah, that always irked me. And it's stupid, but I don't know. Yeah, and so in the book, obviously, he doesn't because his flight is in ten minutes. He doesn't have a pile of food in front of him, <laughs> unless yeah, yeah, yeah. he wasn't just gonna heaver that up, hoover that all up. So well, yeah. I don't know. It just it was weird to put shame cream on a pie, and the squeal was odd to me as well. And so he doesn't come across as um, stubborn or cheated. I mean, I guess he's kind of we definitely empowered come... in in that first scene, but otherwise he's nervous. Like he really portrays uh, he, being uncertain about getting away with this. He only he, got he only showed nervousness in the movie. I don't know about the book, but when he needed to go and implement his plan, yeah, he, he like his whole character changed at that scene where he was like this, this arrogant, cocky kind of guy, where he's like, "I'm the best, I know everything." And then when he went to go get the, the embryos, he he's like he's not, he's very nervous. He's mm-hmm. like, "I'm just gonna go to the vending machine, guys. I didn't know if you need anything." By the way, uh, we're checking this system's gonna be down for 18 minutes whatever it is uh it was just it was like a whole different nedry a whole run-on sentence he just nails the whole thing just uh, yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) yeah he's great and 
I, Wayne Knight, remember the first time I ever saw him? Do you remember a show called, like, The Edge? No. Or I, The Box or something? It was like a... I think my first introduction to Wayne Knight is probably Seinfeld. So he had, like, this sketch comedy thing, and I think Jennifer Aniston was in it. And they used to have this bit, and it was called Armed Family. Hmm. And uh, it was like Mad TV, but I don't know if it was before Mad TV or not. And basically, they just and so they had armed family, and they would have this recurring skit. It was just like a scene out of The Simpsons, except for everybody had guns and the earmuffs on, so they, they the discharges wouldn't hurt. And so every, and, and they were just <laughs> yeah, yeah, and right. so they just blew each other. We don't away. want to hurt our ears. <laughs> so they would wind up just blowing each other away uh, accidentally in every scene. And it was called Armed Family. I think it was called The Edge of the Box. So Wayne Knight was in that. Yeah. Okay, I have no idea. Oh, it was mad funny. It was so bizarre. <laughs> That's the first time I ever saw Nedry, uh, and then uh, of course he was in Space Jam. He was like uh, Michael Jordan. I haven't seen Space Jam. Uh, I'm sorry. The old one? No. Right. Sorry, guys. Again, I, I missed again. that one. It's right up there with um, Jurassic Park, the new one. Dominion, yeah. Oh, Dominion. <laughs> right, they're about the same. Right. Wayne Knight's a, not in. Well, <laughs> there's a Wayne Knight kind of looking guy in the new movie. Oh, is there? He doesn't it, do. Was anything. it like an homage to Wayne Knight or? It probably right. It doesn't make a lot of reason why why else they would have done that. I'll catch that when it's streaming. I don't know if it's streaming yet. Don't, don't hope. I don't. I don't know. I wouldn't right. Know <laughs> um. So the heist. Uh, we right. talk about Nedry's plan. What do you like about Nedry's plan? What do you don't like about Nedry's plan? <laughs> I always thought it was weird that he would just get embryos and not like the genetic code or something like that. Mm. I guess it was just pre-made. They're ready to rock. But like, can you make malt? I guess once you make the dinosaur, you can make more dinosaurs. With the embryo, I guess the idea you is hatch could, them. You you could, bird, you. Well, if you could clone from from the the scrappy pieces that they had, if you had a good piece that wasn't decayed prehistoric or, or anything like that, and wasn't you could clone that also. It also it always seemed to me it would be easier just to grab the data. So yeah, so during the so apparently this this whole procedure what they're doing is like this carefully guarded very expensively guarded secret and they have extraordinary security protocols but Nedry has a chance yeah, yeah. to get past them but like they go on this tour and like all of the proprietary information on how to do exactly this is secretive is locked up no it's just told to everybody who's walking around right okay this is exactly how to do it you could do it too if you just had uh two Cray XMP supercomputers and uh, yeah, right. so the, I would, the hood processors whatever they so that's why I always thought if he just grabbed the data he probably could have just did that sitting at his desk and not in blood and mm-hmm. plan and needed to get to the boat and um, then we wouldn't have a movie but mm-hmm. um, yeah stealing embryos always seemed weird to me you'd be getting these like one offs of each dinosaur and then you'd still have to work to, to create more and that's right. And even if you clone them, you just be cloning the, the same. It's like if you got the DNA for Alvin and the Chipmunks, but you only got one of the Chipmunks. You could only have Alvin? Theodores. Theodores. <laughs> <laughs> and you just keep cloning Theodore. Over the over. plan is cool. I just, it's just, I think it makes the you got. It just makes the book and movie, right? Because, um, because what? How exciting would it be if he just downloaded the data and sent it offshore somewhere? And great, right? So the plan's awesome. Uh, yeah. So I thought about it. Here's what I think. <laughs> so we know that Biosyn has another guy at the East Dock. And Nedry's pretty sure he's like, not the North Dock, the East Dock. East Dock, yeah. And so that's where he's scurrying off to. So Biosyn has at least two spies on Isla Nublar. And Nedry's flaw was that he had to steal a Jeep and slip out into the East Dock for approximately 10 minutes while the system was crashing. So the idea is, why not have the East Dock guy just come to the visitor center and pick it up? Well, the East Dock guy would be outed, unless they didn't know, if, like, would anyway... Well, I guess nobody would be out there to see so him. This is even better. Okay. So, 
he does this at seven o'clock while everybody is off at dinner. Yeah. So there must be like a dinner hall or a restaurant where the staff all go to eat because right. there's like nothing there. That could be your alibi. Yeah. Go and meet the guy at dinner after yeah. you swiped all this stuff. And the two of you are sitting there. And while the things are crashing and then Muldoon or whomever or, comes running over and says, hey, we need you. Everything's crashing. He goes, your alibi is, oh, oh I was just here at dinner. Or, or we'll meet you at the big Jurassic Park game. <laughs> we'll meet you halfway. So, yeah. The, instead of him going through the park, the other guy that wasn't on a timeline could have just been standing there That's waiting true. for it's him. Like, it's like, I've been here for three hours, man. And, but you, but but now you have 18 minutes to get yeah, to so me. So Barry over at the <laughs> East long, Dog just waiting the, for... I don't know, days? That's, that's a super point, because how long has that boat been sitting there? There's no boat at these docks. There's nothing there. The well, Queen, so the A and B left from the North Dock uh, so where, earlier. Where, so where's the, the, where's the insider? Where's the where's the agent guy? Where's he's he at the East from? Dock. But what's, what's he doing dock? there? I don't know. That's, uh, okay. that's another guy. What's he doing there? <laughs> he's Who, just he's chilling at the East Dock. Who was that guy? Because wasn't, wasn't Nedry trying to get the, to this guy who's going to hop in a boat and go? Yeah. Yeah, so we're, something like that. So there must have been boats in there. Or you, they needed 36 hours. Isn't it? So the boat takes 18 hours to drive 100 miles? Uh, That's stupid. That is a long time. That's, you're, you're going backwards. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're trying to lose a tail. Well, it's all, it's all the, uh, you know, the, 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 the pre-going. It's like, you know, you got to make check those checks and balances of, you know, rev up the engines, all that kind of stuff. So I think I think that there was obviously a better idea, but yeah, it doesn't yeah. put Nedry in the park. And mm-hmm. if Nedry doesn't go into the park, uh, we don't have any fun. So also the embryo success rate thing, we were talking about this a little bit. So they have a 0.4% mm. success yeah, yeah, right. rate. That's when right. They're, when they're putting embryos into the shells, yeah. into the 100, Fahrenheit, 100 degrees Fahrenheit, 100% humidity or whatever it was, the perfect things with these perfect eggs. They're incredibly they're unstable. 0.4. Yeah. Which 0.4. if you translate that into what is the failure rate, is 99.6% failure. <laughs> we're just going to launch those into a Barbasol can. Yeah, yeah. So they weren't going to grow, they weren't going to hatch one of these embryos, but they were going to clone it and obviously have no success because they didn't have the lab. They didn't, I don't know, it's such a stupid plan. The data. you got to get the data. <laughs> and, you know, if the success rate were 18 instead of 0.4, if it were 30, if it were 50, it, like, make something up. Like, the creative license he takes in almost every right. aspect of the novel. Why say 0.4? 0.4. I think he's just trying to, like, the sensitivity of everything, how careful everything had to be engineered, how the systems had to be so finite. Like, it was... Yes. Yeah. And but, even so, with all of but those Nandry parameters... But can just grab them and go. With all those parameters, still 0.4% success. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. Yep. Uh, so, <laughs> so that part bugs me. That part bugs me a lot. Uh, the other part about Nedry, flecks of aluminum foil on his shirt and sticky chocolate. Yeah, they're making him out to look like such a slob. On his fingers. For a genius who obviously likes to eat candy bars. He's an eccentric or something. Who you know. taught this guy how to eat? <laughs> so you hold the wrapper and you keep the chocolate off your fingers and then you peel the wrapper back as you eat it. He went full cookie monster and tore this wrapper to pieces. Flecks of foil on him. The flecks of insane. foil. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's like, it's like Hammond calls him Butterfingers. I don't know if that's, that's in the movie and book. He's got Butterfingers. So I wonder if that's a reference to the candy bar at Nate. I think so. And he's oh, got Butterfingers. Oh, to the candy bar itself. I suppose him being clumsy. You know? I don't know. I don't know. Man, yeah. This guy it, it was like a, It was like a product placement or something. He does not know how to eat. <laughs> All right. So we get three cultural references with Dennis Nedry in the novel. And let me know if any of them mean anything to you. I'll tell you this. One of them kind of does to me. The other two I had to look into very closely. One is White Rabbit Object. Make any sense? No, I know. I know. It has something to do with. It's very typical in movies and books, is it not? It's like, um, like a catalyst. Follow the white rabbit. Yeah, 
Yeah. And that's from Alice in Wonderland. Right. She follows the right, rabbit, right, and the rabbit's right. always late. And, some, and, they, and she chases that, and that gets her through... Because uh, that's the code, uh, right? White Rabbit was dot... That was the object. That was the right. thing that executed the plan that took the, the park down. Right. So right, Abbott, White Rabbit object was um, one that I got that's pretty accessible. Second, his login credentials is Mr. Goodbytes. Yeah, you've, you've you told me quite a bit about this and, and other books from Crichton. So there's... I don't know about that. So there's a book uh, about a real-life story about something called the Good Bar Killer. Yeah. There's a movie and a novel, both called Looking for Mr. Good Bar. Mr. Good Bites. But I don't know. So to me, they don't make a lick of sense. I I can't connect to those. I've never thought about this until you brought it up. So no. (laughs) (laughs) And and the other thing is, so I don't know in 1989 if that was especially popular or if that made it like people connected that or not. I don't know. The other reference is Kilroy was here. No. Doesn't mean anything to you? Nope. All right. I will get into those later. Here I was here is like, um, like uh, I guess soldiers during one of the wars yeah. made a habit of leaving a tag behind. Kilroy was here. Kilroy was here. And so that was... So where some, did Nedry use that? He didn't quite use it. Malcolm used it to describe the trap door that Nedry left in the system for him. The computer, uh, anal- uh, computer programmers would leave signatures in the code that uh, okay. were something like that. So that other people, I guess, when they went to go look at it, would say, ah, no, Nedry I, or something like that. But anyhow, the, I never picked up on the trap door was a signature that people who were of that brotherhood, of, okay, right? Yeah, so, yeah, it's like a, a signature. Yep. Something like that. Something that programmers El, did. El Barto. <laughs> yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I keep... <laughs> so anyhow, you're a well-read dude. I was just wondering if those no, were... No, no. Well, I, I read some it odd stuff. Maybe not Alice in Wonderland and... Uh, well, I will read <laughs> Alice's Adventures of Wonderland, and I will have to watch Looking for Mr. Goodbar before too long because I think that they will be illuminating. I hope they will be because Crichton put them in here for some reason or another. Right. All right, trivia questions. Oh, shit. Are we at the... Oh, I just dropped. I know you, you blocked those out. Anyway, go ahead. I'm nervous about the trivia question. Trivia question one. What was the command that restored control to Jurassic Park? No way you're going to get this. No. No. I was thinking about that, too. Finny dot object. No. Finish, right? Finish. Not finish. Like no, Finny, but Finny like, is... Fin, like a, F-I-N-I dot object. Yeah. Because they restore, you're done. Code's done. So they, they entered that in. So they don't do this in the movie. In the movie, they uh, they had to reset. So See, you I can never get I haven't I've read the book in 20 some odd years. Mm-hmm. I've only listened to the audiobook, so definitely not picking up on these fine Oh, details. I was guaranteed you weren't going to get no, this. No, no, God, no. <laughs> I was really hoping you'd give me the anagram Inter- one, Interesting trivia. So people, you can tell all your friends. The command that restored power to Jurassic Park was Finny, Finny dot object. Uh, or, uh, dot object. But okay. they found that the power, the, the phone lines were still jammed, and so they had to get to dump the RAM yes. to reset the commands. Yeah, there's so much memory being They had able to reset to, the system, yeah. and that's yeah. why the park was... So uh, they returned... Uh, this returned the park back to normal, but the phone lines were still jammed, and it was integral that they get the phones back up so they can save Malcolm's life, which is why they do the system reset. So that's obviously different from the film. Trivia question two. What animal does Nedry see scurry across the road while he's driving to the east dock? I missed that completely, man. I didn't know there was, What do you mean? Like, not a dinosaur? For some damn reason. A Dilophosaur. Crichton <laughs> mentions that Nedry sees... An Quick. animal scurry across the road while he is driving to the east dock. Okay. It doesn't make a lick of difference to the rest of the story. It's just a detail for no reason. Or maybe there is 
some reason. Can you think of what animal that was? Is it a mammal? Yep. Well, we're going to say squirrel. It's not a squirrel, but we're going to say squirrel. <laughs> it was an opossum. Uh, probably. probably. He sees its fat tail and thinks it's amazing that a possum could survive here. You'd think that dinosaurs would get an animal like that. And I wonder if that might be an allegory for Nedry, that he might be a rat of some mm. sort. And an allegory is a right. story or a poem like, or a picture that can be interpreted it, it, to reveal a hidden meaning, yes. typically a moral or political meaning. Because opossums are pretty gruesome looking. Well, they're just a, yeah, rodent. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder if, if we're, you know, supposed to look at Nedry as a rodent, as a piece of scum. Well, that's what, that brings you back to the, the flex of foil, the buttery fingers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And in the book, we just finished talking in this part, in the uh, there's a chapter called Breeding Sites, where they're talking about how there was a rat infestation, but nobody... Right. Like, how did you not realize the dinosaurs were, were breeding? Um, and then they say, well, like, we're not feeding enough we're not feeding them enough to for them to, to survive out there. Well, let me guess. Did you have a rat infestation? And he goes, well, it kind of resolved itself. Uh-huh. <laughs> and they say, ah. <laughs> so, there's this quite, so they just finished talking about how the dinosaurs are eating the pests. Right. And then here we have a moment where Nedry is saying, ah, look, a pest. You'd think the dinosaurs would have eaten that. And then um, what happens to Nedry? <laughs> He gets eaten. He gets eaten, but you think the dinosaurs would take care of that. Right. So I wonder. I wonder if there's an allegory to be made there. That there's, Probably. There's some mention. Because it doesn't make a lick of sense that Crichton would just stuff this this moment where... Random man. Like, there's, there's, yeah. He's got other things to worry about. No. He's thinking about his plan. He's thinking about the rain. He's thinking about so, all his problems. And then a rat. Was it the opossum that caused him to lose attention and crash? No, I don't think so. He just looks at it. Yeah, yeah. In fact, he just... He doesn't even crash, I don't think. I think he just... As he, he's driving, he he almost crashes. He slides to a stop at um at a brick wall. He, f- he finds himself on a service road. He's on the wrong road. Or yeah, something. yeah. Well, he, in the movie, it's like he hits the sign and he doesn't know which left or right is what because mm-hmm. the arrow spins. And he around. has to like look around to see. Where, I think he's at a construction site when the, the officer finds him. Well, there was one thing about Nedry and, and go ahead. <laughs> so we've avoided <laughs> chatting about what makes Nedry one of the most awesome characters in the novel. What's the best part about Nedry in the book? I, I still like the death scene because yeah. he was, dies it, the most cool way. It, it was wild and it was graphic. Yes, like I remember, I had I was unfamiliar with the book because I hadn't read it in so long, and I remember I, uh, like I almost went right into the book when they were de- when Crichton was describing that death scene. <laughs> like it was, I was driving and I probably lost fifteen minutes <laughs> <laughs> when I was listening to the audiobook because it was great. And like in the movie, has no comparable to it. Like no. all of a sudden, like the Dilophosaurus in the car. And it's just, you know, it's scaring him, and Nedry's like, and that's Nedry, he's gone. But in the book, it's like, he's he's down, he, he's been disemboweled, he can't see, and, like, he can feel the dinosaur walking. It didn't put his foot on his chest or something like that. He or, lands on its foot, so the foot is in there, foot, yeah. yeah. and it's, like, it's great. It's just a good scene. So and, you, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, do you yeah. recall why Nedry was so agreeable to double-cross John Hammond? Oh, it's his costs, mm-hmm. I imagine. So there's two things I learned. Like Nedry about. was a smart guy. Yeah. Like, he, he was a slob and all that, but he was a smart guy. Like, he, he knew what he was doing. Um, yeah. So he bid for the project. He wasn't given a clear scope that's of exactly what they were doing what, with that's it. That's why he's uh, he's mad about the cost. He's and like, then when they say, yeah, listen, the thing that you built uh, for the quote that you gave us is insufficient for what we need. There's exactly. a lot of problems with it. He's like, oh, well, you didn't tell me you're doing any of this stuff. Well, I... 
this is this is sort of piggybacked on somebody else's podcast but they were they were saying like he was not given any scope like mm-hmm. who, they, he probably wasn't told it was dinosaurs he probably didn't so like the severe like the, the the scope work at all it's like this could be a zoo this could be we're looking at giraffes like not well he thought they were doing um what the human genome project or something he thought they were just uh so coding yeah coding trying to yeah. decode the dna didn't realize how much ai was involved yeah. how much automation automatic cars sensors lighting with the motion sensors all that stuff so there's two things i've learned about project management which i think are interesting one is uh and it's great and i love this expression that you can get your project done fast you can get your project done well and you can get it done cheap but you can't get all three. H- Hammond spared no expense. That's what he says in the <laughs> book or in the movie, but yes. not in, that's not quite the case. No, in the it is not with Nedry. And the second is you define the Can project look, scope, yeah. yeah, and if the scope changes, the project management management has to change as well. And obviously, InGen's lawyers were better than Integrated Computer Systems Inc. because Jurassic Park changed the scope, and he got bent over the barrel. Yes. And there's this line here: he's forced to eat his overages on page 175. Right. Which, when I think about that, and I was just putting this together last night. Is an interesting expression for a guy that's portrayed as a fat, hungry, sloppy slob. Now he's being forced to eat. And it just makes me think of the movie Seven. Really? Yeah, I've seen Seven. What part of Seven? The part where they're punishing the guy for gluttony. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Just being forced to eat. Just, ugh. Right, right, right. Yeah, not to get too R-rated. About it. <laughs> yeah, but I Seven's a dark movie. Yeah. Do you think Crichton's being like subtly illustrating like poetic justice in some way with that? With Nedry and what? In that sentence? Or what? In that in the scene? On the whole, I guess, scope of his narrative arc that he he's built as a sympathetic villain. His purposes are well, explained for a reason. Well, that's why when I was younger, I didn't really even realize he was a villain. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's almost like Nedry's a victim. <laughs> and then he's yeah. a victim of circumstance with 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 Hammond. Like Hammond's a like, bad dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he put it, he put the bid in, and Hammond completely lied to him. And then getting getting a little extra out of Hammond, yeah, yeah. Uh, or at Hammond's expense was like he deserves this, and he does. Hammond sucks. Yeah. And then, but Nedry is literally he's. It's funny for all of Hammond being the like, scapegoat for the whole book. Oh yeah, definitely. Like, they make they may say let's burn this guy burn this guy and we're all we're all redeemed <laughs> it's it's funny because of all Hammond being so evil in the book like I still don't even really see him as the villain mm-hmm. even though he's clearly yeah. the guy who just, he's done he's, he's led the whole thing poor Richard Attenborough oh, yeah Nedry oh, he's 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 definitely the the, the fall guy <laughs> the so book. in terms of of animals that have that harbor no sympathy for something like Dennis Nedry which <laughs> What animals do you know that don't harbor sympathy for Dennis Nedry? Like, like not dinosaurs? Dilophosaurus. Dilo- oh, Dilophosaurus. Okay. All right. I thought you were asking for like a lion or something. <laughs> so here we get to the very best part about Dennis Nedry. Okay. Um, what What did you like about his final moments? In the book or movie? Either one. They're both uh, related. This is where I think that Nedry was actually a very smart guy because he, he was quick on his feet. So I'm thinking to the book, to the movie, sorry, because it's more fresh in my mind. But he he was able to to know what he needed to do once he got stuck in like an instant. And mm. I know it's just writing. It's a movie. But like they portrayed him like he's like, okay, I'm stuck. I'm going to my wench. I'm getting my wench. I'm walking to this tree. I felt he walked way out far into the woods <laughs> than he needed to. But he's got the wench around there. And uh, yeah, definitely after that another favorite part and it's the part of the same scene 
where it's like he's seen the dinosaur and he's like, oh hey, how's it going? And <laughs> he tre- so so here's Nedry thinking he's better than the dinosaur. And he's like, here's the stick, stupid. Throw the stick, and the dinosaur just looks at the stick. He's like, what do you want from me? <laughs> and then he's like, okay, then he's walking up to the thing, and then uh, that's when crap hits the fan for Nedry. Now I don't know if that's exactly how it works in the book, but that's that's the movie that's in my mind. I like mm-hmm. that that whole thing. I also read that when Nedry slips, when he gets out of the jeep the first time and he slips, there's a like whoop. There's like a yeah a slide whistle. So, <laughs> so I don't know if that's purposeful or if that actually was part of like maybe the winch or maybe his rain jacket sliding and they just left it in. It could have been the it, slicker wiping yeah, against itself. Because it seems like it's one of those like cartoony things. Yeah. So I don't know if it's if it's ne- meant to be there. Well, it's meant to be there. It's there. Yeah. But like whether that was planned, I don't know. Or or did they edit that in? That's a good question. It is an odd sound. It's like, what? It has to, maybe he had corduroys on. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it is a weird yeah, whistling yeah. sound. That yeah, yeah. I got to feel like, well, like, it's either one of two things. Either somehow Wayne Knight made that happen when he wiped out, or, or yeah, they they got some, some gaffer to, what do they call those guys? I gaffer does the lighting. That's the guy that does the sounding stuff. Audio technician. <laughs> I don't know. Some guy inserted grip? the sound of. I don't know what a grip is. Some guy inserted the sound of a slide, like something. something it, was, it was definitely a slide whistle. Yeah, yeah. So I, I had read that it was it was something that just happened, but usually they edit all the. I, I don't write movies mm-hmm. or edit movies, but usually they put all the sound in after. Do they not? <sighs> they do it. I would say, like, whenever you, whenever you see a show and they're like at a concert or at a bar, right? And there's all like, that a concert, background music. And everybody's pretending to dance to nothing. Yes, exactly. While they, they hear the, while they record the audio of the actors, right. Speaking. So that's why I don't know if it was a. That's why I don't think it was actually an accidental thing because mm-hmm. they they could have just been like, well, that's stupid. I'm mean, you know, It's almost like Spielberg put a little bit of like comedy. I don't know how easy it is to take a sound out of something you record as opposed to it is well, to maybe. insert something. I, I, I don't if, know if, if it. If it was in there while they recorded, it had to have happened. Well, it's almost like that little sound became like, oh, here's clumsy Nedry. Yeah. I don't know. Well, he was also kind of, I mean, that whole scene is kind of Looney Tunes. Like, it's this cat and mouse. He's banging his head on the Jeep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind yeah. of slapstick. And so I wouldn't be, like, and, the, and it's gruesome. And I think, I wonder if there's a way, like, maybe it was all intentional because it starts off kind of funny. And Nedry is funny. Wayne Knight is a great comedic oh, actor yeah. the timing the the physical humor the wiping out the uh the the stumbling and the bumbling around is really good and the interaction with the dinosaur is playful yeah, yeah. until it stops being playful and again it, it turns on st- here's the stick it turns stupid. fast i yeah, remember yeah. being a kid watching that and when that frill comes out it's a jump scare that's scary it's a jump scare yeah, yeah. you literally <laughs> uh feel it yeah. <laughs> it's not just like uncomfortable it's like thrilling and uh and then the whole thing just goes down from there. Like, oh my God, he's going to be eaten by this thing. <laughs> yeah. So what happens in the book is so wonderful. Something you can't do in film. And so I think there's a big part of why it's different. Is Nedry goes blind. And it's very hard to portray... In a book. Uh, well, in the film, visually, blindness. And the, the horror of just seeing blackness, but hearing mm. and witnessing and experiencing everything around you uh, about to kill you. <laughs> and so, how do you how do you portray that in film? And so, that would be quite the challenge. I, I don't um, envy any director that needs to try and portray that. I don't know how that would work. But you, when you read it, can envision being sightless, and you can envision yeah, you're right, ing- yeah, something yeah. approaching you. And so that horror—that's what they mean. Like he could feel the vibrations yeah. of the dinosaur walking by him, and uh, to be obviously being defenseless in terms of like oh, yeah. where is it and how, what are you going to do? Oh, and uh, he's, and he's, oh yeah, the other part of that death scene too—it just came to my light. Like the, he picks him up by his head. 
yeah. in his jaws. Like it was great. So there's <laughs> there's the blindness, yeah. the intestines. Yeah, yeah, I forgot about the head picking up. Yeah. And uh, and they basically yeah twist him around that way, right? So I don't know if he gets slashed or if he gets kicked. He I gets, like he gets kicked. Because that was that whole like there's like there's, there's multiple disembowelments, right? Mm-hmm. And that was definitely a kick, I think. And uh, so they, they mentioned at one point that a, a raptor's claws can slash out like its hands can slash and disembowel someone. Really? Uh, I didn't remember. And so that I don't. One, yeah. So I don't. Uh, I don't know. If, I think I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure everybody gets disemboweled as kicked. Yeah, I think so. And you don't get a lot of. For all the raptors we got in all those movies, we didn't get any kicking. <laughs> yeah, you brought that up before. Are you? I, I've heard you say that in another podcast. It's just yes. curious. Like, why don't why don't we get some more <laughs> kicking? Uh, yeah. And after what six or how many movies and spinoffs and films, we've seen zero intestines. <laughs> PG. <laughs> zero. Yeah. Well, I get it. I get yeah, it. Yeah, but. Yeah. You think at some point they? But in the book, is there like three pretty graphic disembowelments? I know we see Nedry's intestines, Henry Wu's intestines. Yes. Oh, there's one more. We see the construction workers' femoral arteries. Well, that's the very beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is intestines. I don't think. I thought there was another um, gut gut scene. Well, that could be the topic of another podcast. How that's many? How question. many disembowelments? Uh, well, there's plenty of other murders, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think there's a line at the very end. The final thing that closes out that chapter is, quote, a final wish that it would all be ended soon. Mm-hmm. As mm-hmm. he's lifted up off of the ground right. by his head yep. in the jaws of this Dilophosaur. And it begs the question, do you think he got his wish? We got his wish. Do you think he, it he all didn't ended, want that to happen. Do you think but... it ended soon or do you think he, he probably survived a little while? Nah, I think he was pretty much done. Like, they, they, uh, I don't know. Is it the characteristic of a Dilophosaur to sort of like, sort of like, play with his prey like a cat <laughs> before he dies? Or well, if he's not fighting back, so the idea is, I think, with the venom, is so that he, they would intox, they would, they would uh, poison a, uh, an animal, and then they could eat it at its leisure. Do they, when they picked him up, I might be just recalling this. Did they not in the book mention that they sort of broke his neck doing that, or no? No, no. no. Then I don't know. Because it could, because it says, oh, we'll get to the later part. His leg gets chewed right through. Yes. His leg gets well, chewed. his guts are out. His guts are out. You're bleeding to death. How long do you got? But he's not fighting back. Like he could have been alive while they did all this. Oh, he was definitely alive when it was happening. Well, I think. I think even when they picked him up, because he's even when they picked him up. So it's the question after... is, do you think it all ended soon, or do you think he, he lasted ten minutes? Well, I'm not a doctor, but I imagine like he's got five six minutes after that. I don't know. That's tough. Yeah, I don't know. That's crazy tough. <laughs> I don't think they, they even even if the dinosaur started chewing on his legs and, and, and intestines, he's definitely still. And so, well, he could be shocked and passed out. I I don't know. So is this Nedry scapegoating for the rest of the book? Like, do you think he's the villain? Is he? Is this poetic justice? Like you did the, this bad thing, it's going to cost everyone lives, and you deserve the worst death. Is he the worst death? Uh, we don't get this graphic into Regis. We don't mm. get this graphic into Hammond. We don't get this graphic so to this, anybody else. So this is Crichton. You're thinking, does he? Is he saying? Does he? he does he? Do, this do guy's go? getting his comeuppance. Is, do you think this probably. is probably? Like I don't know why it wouldn't. Why why Crichton would really go into more detail here than other places. Mm-hmm. Because the Raptors don't. Because Creighton would have to have a very good idea. On where, I, I, I'm not a writer, but you'd have to have an idea where your whole book is going in order to, unless you came back to Nedry and rewrote it. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know how my mind of a writer works. Because his death isn't the only thing that we get that, that hammers home that this guy was a piece of, piece of scum. So when, when they finally find him 
two, you know, 70, 70, 80 pages, 90, 90 pages later, he's covered in compies. Mm-hmm. So much right. so that he's portrayed as, quote, indistinct and green. Well, that's in the book. Yes. That's not in the movie. No, they don't yeah, find yeah. him in the no, movie. No, they don't find him in the movie. Um, yeah. Flies buzz around him, his gaping mouth and thick tongue. So his mouth is wide open, and the animals are and flies are eating at his open mouth and face. His body is mangled, his intestines torn open, one leg chewed through. He has blotches on his shirt and his face that smell smell like sweet old dried vomit. And his mm, corneas are the vomit, right? Uh, Would it smell like vomit? I, I, if maybe he, was, he threw up. He was throwing up during the process. Would you throw up if your intestines were outside of you? <laughs> I guess it's not your it's stomach. It's just not your stomach. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I've never, uh, I've never had to to to. I thought maybe the, I thought maybe the the venom or the spit. Maybe the venom. Like yeah. Okay. Because uh, because in the movie it did hit him in the shirt and in the face. Yeah. yeah. His corneas are damaged, so when the people catch him, Muldoon and Gennaro. Find well, it's from him, the spit. Probably it was like a dissolve. It means his eyes are open. He's lying yeah, yeah. there, eyes oh, yeah. open, face open. Oh yeah. Oh, but you'd yeah. be conscious through. The, well, I don't know about conscious, but you'd be alive during that process. I would think if I had poison in my eyes and they were stinging and burning, that my eyes would be very shut. But after death, I just say, when you come across a corpse, <laughs> to find its eyes and mouth open is just so unnerving. Right, right. Um, Muldoon describes compute, this as... compute complete terror, right? Yeah. Muldoon describes this as, quote, not a nice way to go, and then adds, maybe there is justice in the world after all. <laughs> That's right. So, Muldoon's... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He th- he's blaming he blames Nedry for all of this. Yeah, definitely. And I think I think. Well, yeah. If, if Nedry pulled off the plan and the and the power and security goes back on mm-hmm. the hitch, then what movie? Well, he's he especially pissed too because Nedry took his jeep that he had specifically prepped. Oh, I never with, thought about that. With the rocket launcher, like he had a rocket. Is that launcher. where the rocket launcher ends up? Well, that's why they didn't have it because mm-hmm. Nedry drove off with his jeep and he's like, I haven't got any weapons to stop the racks, and so he didn't want to go in the park and he couldn't go wrangle the animals because he's got no way to stop right. the tyrannosaur this whole time. So anyhow, Muldoon in particular was like pissed that Nedry like, "Why you stole my jeep, you plunker?" <laughs> and then that that leaves Gennaro basically referring to Nedry, at, you know, he, he's like he so basically calls Nedry a piece of dog crap, saying, "Watch it, you don't step in something over there." To Gennaro as they leave his body behind, and Gennaro's got some heart believing that they should take Nedry with them. And Gennaro does, yeah. yeah, yeah. And they did this with uh, back of the T Rex attack. Yeah, they found Regis's leg, leg, and they took the leg, took and, that and, with them, and uh, yeah. And Muldoon says, "Nah, we got things to do." So Muldoon <laughs> had enough respect because I remember in the in the in the book, he's like, "It's like I just don't feel right about leaving this behind." But yeah, yeah. with Nedry, he's like, "Don't care." <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And then they leave, and the copies climb back onto Nedry's face, and are just said to be. Uh, to resume nibbling his nose. <laughs> yeah. And that closes the chapter on Dennis Nedry. The life and times cool. of Dennis Nedry. Fun fact, because I copied it off the internet. What's that? Uh, Nedry's costumes are modeled after Goonies characters. I saw that. <laughs> yeah. So that was my fun fact for you. Yeah. And we film. already knew that. Uh, I saw that too. That yeah. he, he, was it Chunk? That he's designed, what was the name of the Well, cat? one of them's got the Hawaiian stuff going. One of them's got the slicker. Right, I, I think he. That's how he looks. Yeah, in that, that, that same actor. I, yeah, yeah, I saw that. That was interesting. <laughs> that he modeled the costumes after him. So uh, you would have got that if I had asked that a trivia question. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that that was my um, my uh, last point. Yeah. And that's yeah. There's not much more to say about Dennis Nedry. You enjoy this? Did I you did. Come away from this thinking Dennis Nedry. We know it. I was scared. <laughs> we got through it. That wasn't too bad. Maybe. 
Yeah. We'll let the public uh, determine that. All right. Well, next time you come on with more trivia questions on whatever, we'll figure it out. Go right on. <laughs> All right. A very, very special thank you to, to Adam for returning to be on the podcast and, and uh, joining me in a, a terrific breakdown of everything about Dennis Nedry that we needed to know. Uh, this week's text is the tour, spanning from pages 92 to 111, and geez, we haven't done a synopsis for this chapter yet, after three episodes, so here we go. Hammond selfishly, carelessly, unbelievably invites his young grandkids to the park during its preliminary safety inspection, to the fury of Donald Gennaro. Tim and Lex join the tour and offer their first impressions of all the character. We learn about Tim's relationship with his father, that his parents are divorcing, and that his little sister is daddy's little girl. They meet Dr. Henry Wu, who leads them through the extractions room, the gene sequencing room, the hatchery, and the nursery, while moving past the control room and security guards. All the answers to how Jurassic Park clones its dinosaurs are answered here, and Ian Malcolm takes careful stock of everything on the tour, preparing his challenging remarks that the island is inherently unsafe. Characters. In part three of the tour, we're focusing on Sattler, Owens, Muldoon, Wu, Grant, Kathy, and the Velociraptors. Ellie Sattler. Sattler is again centrally observed for her femininity. Tim's first impression of her is that she's a blonde woman wearing shorts on page 93, and he finds himself staring at Sattler's legs. So much that Lex taunts him, saying, your mouth is open. Though to be fair, his mouth may have been hanging open because he recognizes Alan Grant, one of his personal heroes. And before the tour can start, apparently everyone is waiting for Ellie to return from the ladies' room on page 96. Owens. We don't know much about this character. We hear of the general contractor, who presumably is in charge of construction on the island, and his name is Owens on page 96. And Regis believes that it is this person who should have been dealing with that construction accident. And uh, I think this is our only mention of Owens. They go past the general manager's office on page 97 on this tour, but we're not given any identity for who the general manager is. The GM and the general contractor aren't necessarily the same person. So we got perhaps two different people here. Robert Muldoon, we are briefly introduced to him. Robert Muldoon is, quote, a famous white hunter from Nairobi, which is in Kenya, or Kenya, if you, like me, didn't know where Nairobi is. Uh, he's a burly man in khaki, wearing sunglasses, dangling from his shirt pocket. We have Dr. Henry Wu. Wu is the chief geneticist stationed in the extractions room, who assumes the lead of the tour once the consultants arrive on page 98. Wu reveals that they extract DNA from crushing up dinosaur bones and using Loy's procedure to recover about 20% of the proteins from a strand of DNA, which is insufficient for cloning, so they prefer to use dinosaur blood extracted from mosquitoes who are encased in amber, hence the name The Extraction Room. From there, Wu leads the consultants through the rooms for gene sequencing, fertilization, and, he, and the hatchery, explaining the processes and answering questions. In particular, he comments that they want to improve upon the 0.4% survival rate of their hatched animals. Wu says the dinosaurs are prevented from breeding in the wild as a control mechanism on page 108. This is a critical matter, and Jurassic Park employs a redundancy system for critical matters which means two measures are implemented to tackle the same problem, because this is important for maintaining control. They irradiate the gonads and also only breed females to ensure that no animals are breeding in the park, on page 109. Kathy. Kathy is a young woman in a white coat, seated on the floor, playing with an infant velociraptor working in the nursery, on page 107. And finally, Velociraptors. They have an infant Velociraptor, Mongoliensis, in the nursery on page 107. It looks like a lizard, says Nedry. It's about a foot and a half long, the size of a small monkey. 
It's a dark yellow color with brown stripes like a tiger. It has a lizard's head and long snout and stands upright on its strong hind legs balanced by a thick, straight tail. Its smaller front legs waved in the air. It cocks its head to one side and peers at the visitors. This one's only six weeks old. Its skin is warm and completely dry, not weighing more than a pound. It has dark beady eyes and a small forked tongue that flicks in and out. They don't have teeth, even egg teeth, and their pointy noses are sufficient for breaching the eggshells and nursery staff help them out. And note, the whole discussion about lacking egg teeth, even though their nose snouts are sufficient for breaking through the egg, renders the egg teeth discussion moot. If their pointy snouts are sufficient to break through an eggshell, why bother having a conversation about egg teeth at all in this part of the book? This may suggest that other species on the island do have egg teeth. So consider the Apatosaurus, the Tyrannosaurus, the Stegosaurus, all having little egg teeth as newly hatched critters. That'd be neat. The infant raptor springs into Tim's arms, demonstrating that velociraptor babies can jump, and so can the adults. As a matter of fact, says Dr. Wu on page 108. The infants are friendly, and throughout the novel, really, the only velociraptors that pose a threat to our heroes are the ones that have, quote, learned that man is easy prey, all of whom are kept in the raptor holding pen. The others, though potentially lethal, don't pose a threat to our heroes during the novel. Or they don't actually become a threat, anyhow. The little raptor is friendly with Tim, on page 109, rubbing its head against his neck. When Grant inspects it, it screams shrilly, on page 109, and it hates being examined by Grant, and screams in distress. And the infant is cute, but don't fall in love with this little fella. Tomorrow morning, she's going to be Velociraptor Chow, and Grant feeds it to the adult raptors infesting the visitor center, but we'll get to that part soon enough. Uh, Dr. Alan Grant. Grant's portrayed as a bearded man in a Hawaiian shirt who looks like an outdoors type on page 93. It won't be mentioned for hundreds of pages more, but he's wearing cowboy boots too. He's recognizable to Tim for being a dinosaur author. And Tim recalls that Grant is one of the, quote, principal advocates of the theory that dinosaurs were worm-blooded. He had done lots of digging at a place called Egg Hill in Montana, which was famous because so many dinosaur eggs had been found there. And Professor Grant has found most of the dinosaur eggs that have ever been discovered he was also a good illustrator, and he drew the pictures for his own books. On page 93, we're told. Grant identifies with Tim right away, saying he's got, quote, the exact same problem of having dinosaurs on the brain. Grant is drawn to Tim, falling in step with him as they head to the visitor's center. He's interested in Tim and can relate to his tale about specimen AMNH5027 on page 95. In the extractions room, Grant is one of the most interested in finding out where the dinosaur DNA comes from as the basis for cloning. It's crossed my mind, he says, in an understatement. <laughs> Upon hearing about the nucleated red blood cell extractions, Tim thinks that Grant still appears skeptical about this whole process. With Grant's well-documented technology aversion aside, he's surrounded by very complicated machinery, extraction technology, supercomputers, Hamachi Hood gene sequencers, and computer monitors all throughout this chapter, yet Dr. Grant is following along with Wu's explanations very well. He's no dummy, these things aren't beyond his comprehension. It's just that he doesn't quite know how to operate computers. That's all. When arriving in the hatchery, Grant recognizes that the hot, damp, humid, oxygen-rich atmosphere is replicating the, quote, Jurassic atmosphere on page 106. Seeing how much Timmy knows about dinosaurs makes Grant smile on page 107. In the nursery, Grant finds the infant velociraptor and his paleontological mind begins whirring. We know from earlier that studying infant theropods is his next major career focus after all that Mayasaura work from Montana. Therefore, what a thrill to meet an infant theropod.
Upon hearing that the staff help raptors breach their eggshells because they lack even egg teeth in infancy, Grant wonders how they'd ever survive in the wild, which leads the discussion on all the dinosaurs being female. Fascinated with the infant, Grant asks Tim if he can hold the velociraptor himself, peering critically at it. He flips it on its back and lifts its hide so it can look at its profile, studying it to the raptor's great distress. He squeezes its tail, feel, feels its bones, studies it carefully, and complains that he's not hurting it. But Regis gets firm with Grant and Grant listens, returning the infant to Tim. Regis has to interrupt Grant from examining the velociraptor, hoping to stop him from putting the infant in distress. And Grant has drawn the raptor's ire. He leans toward it at one, one last time, and the little animal bares its jaws, hisses, and assumes a posture of sudden intense fury. Localities. In terms of localities, we're wrapping up those rooms that remain. The fertilization room, the hatchery room, and the nursery. Fertilization room. A disappointing lack of Barry White music is not mentioned in the baby-making room, which is protected by a security card on page 105. It has technicians working at microscopes with a back section lit by ultraviolet light. On one side, there are big tanks filled with liquid nitrogen, and a big walk and big walk-in freezers, plural, with shelves of frozen embryos stored in tiny silver foil wrappers. I have trouble imagining what an embryo wrapped in a silver foil wrapper would look like. And I considered it if they were already in millipore plastic eggshells, or if they were like in blister packs, or a, like a pack of XL chewing gum, or maybe they were like Hershey's Kisses or Werther's Originals, a stick of double mint maybe, or like a peppermint patty. And so I looked a little harder at the book. Now, page 176, when Nedry is stealing the embryos, they're described as being in thin glass containers wrapped in silver foil, stoppered with polyline. And polyline is a trademarked polyolefin component of molded plastic products. But that further definition likely doesn't make this image any clearer in your mind, right? No, me neither. So polyline is a component in the polyethylene, which now you can imagine is, you know, like a plastic wrap. And this is kind of a sciencey way of saying it's a test tube stoppered with a plastic cork. So fancy work, Crichton, clear as mud. The hatchery room. This room is warm and damp, we're told on page 105. It's maintained at 99 degrees Fahrenheit, a relative humidity of 100%, and a higher oxygen concentration, raised up to 33% on page 106, which Dr. Grant calls a Jurassic atmosphere. I researched that our present atmosphere is commonly composed of about 21% oxygen, so about a third less than in the Jurassic, which is fairly significant, I think. The eggs are permeable to skin oil, so you can't touch them, and there are always sensors moving, so watch your head. The vast open room is bathed in deep infrared light with eggs on long tables covered in a hissing low mist. The eggs rock gently. It's also called a nursery, where workers stand in waist-deep mist, turning the eggs each hour, using thermal sensors to check the temperature, while an overhead thermal sensor moved from egg to egg, touching them with a flexible wand and beeping. It's monitored by overhead TV cameras and motion sensors. And finally, the nursery. The nursery is an all-white and circular room with hospital-like incubators, with rags of toys scattered all over the floor. It's staffed by Kathy, a young woman in a white coat, seated on the floor, playing with an infant velociraptor. Allusions and references. We have the Jurassic atmosphere. Grant and Wu tell us a, quote, Jurassic atmosphere is 99 degrees Fahrenheit, 100% relative humidity, with an oxygen concentration of 33%. National Geographic concurs the Jurassic had a, quote, warm, wet climate and would have been, quote, humid and tropical. The true Jurassic, granted it was 50 million years long, so, like, there was plenty of time for over 50 million years of 
of all sorts of different weather and climates, but the Jurassic atmosphere was about f 5 or 10 degrees Celsius warmer than today, uh, which eliminated any ice caps and flooded the Earth in a humid tropical atmosphere with atmospheric carbon dioxide likely four times higher than today. So higher temperatures and humidity are, are, are certainly more Jurassic, and while Nas National Geographic specifically refers to significantly higher levels of carbon in the atmosphere, I found no mention of heightened oxygen levels. But I didn't look very hard, so that's not academically conclusive on my part, anyhow. Grant's Velociraptor excavation uh, is alluded to. Quote, I just ex excavated a raptor, says Grant on page 108, referencing the earlier episode 8, The Shore of the Inland Sea, and episode 11, Plans, where we're clearly told, pound for pound, velociraptors are the most rapacious dinosaur ever. About 200 pounds, quick, intelligent, and vicious, with sharp jaws, clawed forearms, and, devastating, and a devastating claw on the foot. So we're to recall, when we meet this cute little chick, that it'll grow up into the most rapacious dinosaur ever. Literary techniques. Uh, we use quite a bit of similes. One example here that looked like a small version of Mission Control, says Crichton. Mission Control refers to NASA's control room, where they launch and control spacecraft. It resembles an auditorium lined with many desks and computers all facing the front of the room, where there's a large series of screens reporting more data. And you can imagine everyone wearing collared shirts and headphones while they're nervously working. Ultimately, it's to give the impression of a highly computerized, scientifically advanced bank of data and operating equipment, not a crowded room. But it also transfers the quality of that tension often portrayed at Mission Control, as if billions of dollars and decades of work could spontaneously blow up in their faces. Read John Arnold's Frayed Nerves. <laughs> a pretty good simile. It looks like a lizard, says Nedria, the infant velociraptor on page 107. We can all think of what a lizard looks like and can probably relate to how not impressive it would be to see a little lizard and have someone tell you it's actually a living, breathing dinosaur. That? That little lizard is a dinosaur? So that's a, that's a pretty good simile. Dark yellow color with brown stripes like a tiger on page 107 to describe the Velociraptor. And we can imagine a tiger's stripes, though we often consider a tiger more orange than yellow, but whatever. Also, it lends some of a tiger's ferociousness and beauty to the raptors as well. Little horns on the tip of the nose like rhino horns to help them break out of eggs on page 108. We can easily recognize a rhinoceros horn as those monumental spikes thrusting beyond their faces. They're massive, heavy, and elongate. And I doubt that's what we're getting on these infants. Rather, it's a horn on the nose, just like a rhino has a horn on its nose, but not the same type of horn. It's not massive, heavy, and elongate. That said, that type of horn isn't described. All in all, this is a lousy simile. The egg teeth, like horns, would be more like a thorn on a rose bush, though not as pointy. So Crichton kind of blew it with this simile. It doesn't make a lick of sense. Uh, let's talk about some more stuff. How about, like, cloning? Jurassic Park's mythological cloning techniques, we're told... Begin when they find an insect with foreign blood cells in it, which can be extracted, replicated, tested, and cloned on page 99. They clone the DNA and then use that to create an animal, and most specifically a dinosaur. Wu says dinosaur DNA is easier to extract than mammal DNA, page one, uh, sorry, 99-100, because mammalian red cells have no nuclei and no DNA in their red cells, so they must use a white cell, which are more rare. The inverse must be true. Reptiles have, must have nuclei in their red cells, and they can use red cells which are common. Wu says there are four basic compounds in DNA, or are the constituent bases of nucleic acids. Adenine, a purine derivative. Thymine, a pyrimidine derivative. Guanine, which occurs in guano and fish scales. And cytosine, 
found in living tissue. And we're told this on page 101. The adenine and thymine are paired in double-stranded DNA, and guanine and cytosine are paired in double-stranded DNA. These compounds are abbreviated as C, G, A, T, and appear in the codes displayed in the novel in various combinations on page 101. These contain the simple codes to build enzymes or hormones, and a full DNA molecule contains 3 billion of these bases. The incomplete DNA strands are analyzed, and the computer automatically finds a fragment of DNA to overlap the injury area, recombined and and repaired, an operation that can be done in seconds, we're told on page 102. They don't work with an entire strand of dinosaur DNA, Wu admits, on page 102. That's just too much work. It'd take a computer four years to decode a strand only 30 years ago, says Wu. Now it takes a couple of hours, so they accept that most strands of DNA are entirely the same. And very small variations actually differ from animal to animal, so they primarily only focus on those small differences in the DNA, and even that is a big job. Once they've analyzed the DNA, there are two ways to figure out what species they've got. Either use phylogenetic mapping, looking at the DNA's place in evolutionary history and determining roughly by computer where it fits in the evolutionary sequence, or just, quote, grow it and find out what it is, says Wu on page 105. And let's pause here. The paper Phylogenomics, Principles, Opportunities, and Pitfalls of Big Data Phylogenetics, published in Systematic Entomology in December 2019, provides most of my critique here. Uh, Phylogenetic mapping is the science of reconstructing the evolutionary history of life on Earth. This was traditionally performed by using, quote, morphological data, which means the shapes of living organisms were classified and grouped, and the things which were similar in shape were deemed to be related, and family trees were developed to show that familial relationship. In non-avian dinosaur phylogenetic mapping, this means measuring every damn nook and cranny on a vertebra, every little ridge possible on a femur, every crevice or angle all over a whole skull. And the differences and similarities between those measurements show how dinosaurs are related to each other. But it requires an extraordinary number of measurements. You can only imagine all the details that go into a single bone, let alone an entire skeleton. And second, fossil remains are overwhelmingly incomplete. The fancy new abelosaurid identified in the news section today was identified as an abelosaur by the distinctly abelosaurid shape of its vertebra. And all they had is that one vertebra. The measurements in the shape of that vertebra said it was distinctly like other abelosaurs, and comparatively not a spinosaur or a megaraptorin or a carcharodontosaur. This is the, quote, morphological data method, I think. I'm not a doctor. Not a doctor. Shh. From your lawn. However, morphological data is imperfect. Some things are similarly shaped, but are unrelated. And other things look nothing alike, but are closely related. And throughout the paleontological record, convergent evolution muddies the waters. When two unrelated animals evolve common traits, like a long-necked giraffe and a brontosaurus, or the membranous wings of a pterosaur and a bat, both examples are categorically unrelated, but share common features that evolved independently. So instead of morphological data, beginning in the late 1970s, Sanger sequencing, which is a method used to determine a portion of the nucleotide sequence of an individual's genome, and PCR, or polymerase chain reaction, which is a method of, for replicating genes, which allows a single gene to be amplified into millions of duplicate copies, enabled genetic information to be incorporated into phylogenetic analyses. So, comparing the DNA of species was a new way, in the late 70s, remember, to see how they were fundamentally built rather than how they looked different, which eliminated that sticky problem of convergent evolution. But whether it's DNA sequencing or morphological comparison, they both require the same thing, loads of raw data. 
Only by having an enormous catalog of data to compare against can any true mapping be performed. And I've called this analysis through the incredible matrix of the data, the quote, phylogenetic analysis machine, as if it were some magic trick, because I literally can't imagine what it must look like or how it works, but I'm enthralled with the outcomes that it produces. So the reason we pause at this moment in Wu's explanation of how they determine which species of dinosaur they've extracted from their amberized mosquitoes is that we know DNA doesn't fossilize, or even by virtue of the Loy's procedure, the yield is so insufficiently low at only 20%. Their catalog of data is near empty. Also, they've only been collecting data for a few years. Wu was first recruited in 1984, so at the very earliest, they began cataloging only five years ago. However, they would require a fairly robust library of DNA from all across time to know where a fragment they uncover fits into the evolutionary history of DNA. Phylogenetic mapping is incredibly cool, but it's lacking in many ways because the fossil record is very incomplete, knowing that DNA doesn't survive fossilization. I don't know how on earth phylogenetic mapping for DNA would be useful in any way, what with all the holes in the historical record. Guess what I'm saying here is, the, this identification of a dinosaur by its DNA by virtue of phylogenetic mapping would be beyond inaccurate. The database would be egregiously underpopulated with data. In fact, the only way they'd get any data of what animal they might have extracted would be to grow it out, even though Crichton sort of presents this as the lazy alternative to doing it the right way. And finally, on the topic of cloning, Nedry reveals that the design systems is likely only analyzing DNA fragments because the entire strain is far beyond even science fiction in the 1980s. So it's interesting to see that Crichton has put a limit on what's possible in this secretive, highly advanced world of biotech. The RAM-intensive algorithms and multi-XMP computers apparently explain that it's really unlikely anybody can do this stuff. It's so crazy and big, but I guess if you've got multi-XMP power, then you can do it. So in a world where one private company has multi-XMP systems, multi-XMP, yes, multi-XMP systems and RAM-intensive algorithms, one firm working in secret will just analyze DNA fragments. Crichton is obviously trumping up the science here to strongly suggest this is significantly beyond what's possible, but perhaps with the right tools, ambition, and $840 million in startup capital, one unregulated, single-minded company could make it happen. Chicken or the egg? It's suggested that they use unfertilized crocodile ova and replace the DNA to make their dinosaurs on page 105. As the reptile eggs contain large amounts of yolk, but no water, the embryos must extract moisture from the atmosphere, hence the surrounding environment on page 106. The table holds about 150 eggs, representing a new batch of DNA extraction. They take about two months to hatch, in general, we're told on page 107. Inventory management. Batches are identified by alphanumeric codes. STEG458-2 and trike 390-4 are examples. The letters describe the animal like Stegosaurus and Triceratops, which would run into trouble if they ever started breeding other animals with a common prefix in their names. The XXXX represents an unconfirmed species, which they presume is Solurosaurus, whose code would be C-O-E-L, but there are at least four other named species that begin with the same letters, C-O-E-L, including the great Coelophysis, the Silurosaurus, as well as the poorly known Indian specimen Siluroides, and the other great Silurus. Uh, and their naming system has limits, is what I'm trying to say here. They, they should have stuck with the numbers, but uh, pro Crichton probably did this to relate to his readers and make them feel more like they're looking at dinosaurs instead of serial numbers. 
Bells and whistles. They're not just cloning extinct animals. They're also bioengineering and splicing the genes and doing other fancy stuff. Wu says they must interrupt cellular mitosis on page 105 at precise instances which requires virulent poisons. It's a critical matter that population control measures are in place. So Jurassic Park employs a redundancy system, meaning there are two measures taken to ensure that there is no unauthorized breeding in Jurassic Park. First, the gonads are irradiated, and second, only females are bred. And the lab controls both the chromosomes and the intra-egg developmental environment, and so they deny them a hormone at the right moment during the development to prevent them from growing into a male. And the results? More than a dozen crops of extractions have resulted in 283 living animals in Jurassic Park. The survival rate is 0.4%, which they want to improve upon. We're also told that dinosaurs attained full size in two to four years on page 106. So 0.4% success rate. Let's, let's talk about Biosyn's crafty uh, industrial espionage here. So Biosyn's plan to steal embryos is gravely affected by this 0.4% success rate. Biosyn doesn't know this, but what it means is, practically speaking, had Nedry survived, there's a statistically impossible chance that they would have grown even one of these embryos into a dinosaur. There's almost zero chance they'd have grown a dinosaur if Nedry had stolen 250 embryos. Dr. Wu says during the tour, our survival rate is somewhere around 0.4%, and we naturally want to improve that on page 106. That's 0.4 out of 100, or 4 out of 1,000, or reduced down, that's 1 out of every 250. Those are horrifyingly low yields. One in 250 eggs grows a dinosaur. On the table, there was a batch of 150 eggs. Statistically, none of those will survive. Remember that table holding about 150 eggs representing a new batch of DNA extraction mentioned earlier on page 107? They will take about two months to hatch and, statistic and statistically all fail. In fact, two tables of these eggs will probably yield a single dinosaur. That's the reality of a 0.4% success rate. It also shows why Regis was so pissed off with Grant twisting the infant raptor in the nursery. And probably, too, why Hammond is desperately reluctant to have anyone resort to using lethal force against the dinosaurs. Why is the success rate so bad? Quote, by our computer analysis, we're working with something like 500 variables, 120 environmental, 200 intra-egg, and the rest, 180, from the genetic material itself, we're told on page 106. So, with Jurassic Park's unique extraction methods, and in their hatchery maintained at 90 degrees Fahrenheit, a relative humidity of 100% and an increased oxygen levels, a Jurassic atmosphere, they still only yield a 1 in 250 chance of growing a dinosaur. Nedry's plan is to extract one embryo representing each species and give them to Biosyn. There is statistically a 0.4% chance that each will survive. Statistically, that even one embryo of the bunch survives is 15 times 0.4%, or 6%, a likelihood of 94% chance complete failure. And the odds that all survive is something like 0.4 to the exponent of 15, which is like 0.000001%. Like, impossible. And that's the success rate with a custom plastic egg process, the appropriate hatchery, nursery, and technically the lysine doses to combat the lysine contingency, which Biosyn A doesn't have and B doesn't even know they need. The probability of any success that this plan yields anything is at best 6%. And in practice, let's face it, it's zero. It's a bad, bad plan. 
Secondary to Biosyn's awful plan, Nedry's fine, though statistically he won't see a penny from any viable embryos because they're all going to die, there's the no-breeding strategy for species control. It begs, on hands and knees, the question, why stop the dinosaurs from breeding? Wouldn't that be much easier and financially sound than to use a method that fails 99.6% of the time? Apparently they deny them chromosomes intra-egg and then irradiate their gonads to neuter the females, but... After surviving the odds, they subject these precious animals to further mutilation? Instead of just keeping the males and females apart like every zoo in the world does? It's absurd. It's utterly absurd. Could Crichton have fixed this? Yes, the whole premise of stealing the embryos, neutering the females, the whole thing is remedied by just picking any number other than 0.4% that makes a single ounce of sense so the story can move forward, right? And then there's this idea that the animals are released in batches at the same time. The compies, we'll find out soon, are released in three batches. The odds of cooking up three, even small batches, of compies mathematically demands that they prepped thousands of eggs at the same time in the same batch. For 49 compies at a survival rate of 0.4%, or 250 eggs per each survivor, mathematically we require, statistically speaking, 12,250 eggs. That sounds a bit much, of course. This was done in bunches of three, so it's more like 4,000 at a time. It's no wonder this hatchery is described as vast, right? It must be huge. Extrapolating that same data from the Compi inquiry to statistically breed 238 surviving animals, that's almost 60,000 eggs in the last few years, each requiring several months to gestate. But Wu says they stagger hatchings to make less work for the nursery staff, so you can imagine how, it's, how it is when we have 150 animals born within a few days. Though, of course, most don't survive. So they aren't failing in the egg, they're dying on the table, which is kind of gruesome. What do you suppose they do with hundreds of dead baby dinosaurs? All right, let's drop that subject. Feminism. Tim finds himself staring at Sattler's legs uh, some more, just like Malcolm and Bob Morris from the EPA did earlier. Uh, And this is just a little detail, but they could have been waiting for anybody to finish up in the washroom, literally. Crichton could have written any single character on the tour to be holding them up, but he picks the singular woman to use the washroom and hold up the tour from getting started. Maybe this is nothing, but it's probably totally something. Maybe it's a latent hang-up Crichton's had with women in the powder room freshening up, delaying him from doing much more practical and important things with his time, or perhaps he's just, you know, envisions Sattler as having to take a whiz. I don't know. Lex seems like the practical choice for this moment. What with her just saying that she had to go, but like, it wasn't Lex. It was Sattler. There's definitely a latent, I don't want to call it misogyny, but maybe that's what it is. It's just the women are a different category of, of people with Crichton, whether he knows it or not. Maybe it's some sort of Freudian lens producing those results. But the other interesting choice about females is that all the dinosaurs are bred to be female. Quote, from a bioengineering standpoint, females are easier to breed, says Wu. So, all our animals are female. We tend to refer to some of them as male, such as a Tyrannosaurus rex. We call it a him. But in fact, they're all female. There's something to be said for having all the dinosaurs being female, but admitting, we refer to all the cool dinosaurs as males, though. This isn't just Crichton writing his characters as misogynistic. This is built into how he chooses to tell the story. Paleontology. Grant is said to have discovered, quote, most of the dinosaur eggs that have ever been discovered on page 93. And I feel like this is one of two things. Either Timmy is egregiously misinformed or Crichton is egregiously misinformed. Timmy is portrayed on par with Dr. Grant as a dinosaur savant. So 
I think this misrepresentation falls upon Crichton's misunderstanding. I won't speculate on how Crichton came to believe that any one paleontologist might have discovered most of all the known dinosaur eggs ever found, but it sounds like an incredibly misinformed statement. As early back as the 1920s, digs were uncovering fossilized dinosaur eggs in Mongolia, and they've been found all over the world since then. The first eggs were identified as Protoceratops eggs, and it was thought that Oviraptor was trying to steal them, hence the name Ovi, which is egg, and Raptor, thief, the egg thief. And then, after technology permitted a deeper investigation into those Protoceratops eggs, it was found they were in fact the, the Oviraptor's eggs. The egg thieves weren't stealing those eggs, they were brooding over those eggs, they were their eggs. And that's wild. Mongolian digs were uncovering fossilized dinosaur eggs back in the 1920s, first believed to be Protoceratops, but eventually to be revealed to be Oviraptor eggs. There were at least 39 different types of oogenera, or egg species, which are taxonomically described types of eggshell. They've been found all over the world, although I don't know chronologically if, any, if at any point in the 90s that any one individual could have found the most of all the dinosaur eggs ever discovered. For 70 years, could a 40-year-old man have discovered most of all the known dinosaur eggs ever found? As far as a peripheral, insubstantial, cursory glance at the history of naming fossilized dinosaur egg genera, prior to the novel's publication in 1990, and thus while Crichton was researching writing the late, in the late 1980s, most eggs which had been published on were discovered in China and Mongolia. I guess, in a world where Dr. Alan Grant has become the foremost author on the nesting habits of Myasaura, where he became famous for finding so many dinosaur eggs, one paleontologist has come to discover the most of all known dinosaur eggs ever found. But in real life, up to 1989, most fossil eggs are being described from China, Mongolia, and then a few are from South America or Alberta. From what I can tell, if there were a singular person who discovered the most dinosaur eggs ever at that point in time, he'd have been a paleontologist of Chinese nationality. But I think the data I was looking at to research this was suspiciously lacking because there are no Myasaur Ugenera named, and there were definitively Myasaur eggs discovered. So if there's no Myasaur eggs in the data I looked at, I think it's fair to think that that data was likely incomplete. So this, I guess, is just me spitballing. Overlook it as you see fit. Believe me, I know, again, this trope that someone in this story asserts, believe me, to reiterate a final fact, ending a discussion and being entirely wrong, uh, rears its familiar head again. To conclude that dinosaurs cannot breed in Jurassic Park, Wu states, and believe me, they can't breed, on page 109. And he says, you can take that to the bank, and of course we do, and he is bankrupt, because uh, <laughs> they breed. Building a mystery, we answer a few of the narrative questions that were raised earlier in the book. Where does the dinosaur DNA come from? From blood-sucking insects preserved in amber. Why are they stockpiling the amber? Because this is the source of the dinosaur DNA. Why they create XMP supercomputers and Machihood gene sequencers? Well, that's answered here too. It's for the extractions and cloning. We see why they bought millipore plastics as well, though that wasn't really a mystery, but rather mysterious transaction in, in, in Gen's past. What remains unknown? Why the northern digs? That won't show up until the very end. How are animals escaping the park? Still isn't quite answered. What's with the compi remains? I don't think we're going to get to the answer to that. Gennaro still has to decide whether or not he th feels the island is safe. <laughs> and uh, we still haven't figured out who is Dodgson's mysterious inside man. Well, thanks to my special guest today, Adam Leggett. I really appreciate you coming back on, buddy. Thanks for having me over to uh, talk about Dennis Nedry. That was wonderful. And this wraps up our, our three-part, long, long chapter on the tour. 
Uh, let's move on. We'll have another good episode, but finally a new chapter to talk about next time. I want to sign off today thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book, add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, or be a guest on the show, and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park. You can do that by connecting with me and my Brian S. Rogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book, and also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Park Cast is a part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens Funny Pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, The Infantry and the Worst of Them All, The King Street Papers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers. For me, I'm on Twitter at RogersRyan22. Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park cast. Jurassic Park podcast, where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park, also not that. Until next time. I, I used to worry about what people would say, but then nobody said anything. Yeah.